Hi everyone, and thanks for joining us for um, a long overdue episode of Compliant with Alliant. Um, I'm going to take to calling it COVID with Alliant, not to make light of what is a very serious set of circumstances, but because we are in a laugh so you don't cry kind of moment, yeah? Hi, uh, it's Diana Craig. I'm here with Christine as always, and yes, we are trying to uh, yes, laugh, not cry over this. We know it's affecting a lot of people, but we wanted to talk to you guys more specifically about the legislation that passed yesterday. Yeah, and before we get to that, um, I do want to talk about, we understand how stressful that this is on a macro basis um, for your business operations, for your families, for your own health. And so um, we will be doing a series of podcasts sort of addressing the impact on employers and also just generally in our like little part of the world, how we can help you look at the practical implications of um, what's happening legislatively. So to Diana's point, that's what we'll talk about. We'll, we'll also have another um, podcast about sort of health and wellness, and then we'll talk a little bit about leaves. We have a number of written pieces that are already available, FAQs, charts, 50 state charts, all of those are going to be important. They're going to be updated. Please access them and use them. We want to make sure we're coming to you with really practical guidance and not adding to the noise that you're already receiving. So let's talk through a little bit. Um, Diana, do you want to start on on the Families First Coronavirus Response Act? Well, yeah, I mean, it's just been a little bit of a whirlwind. We had the House introduce a bill on Friday. We wrote that up really quickly, and then um, the iterations changed fast. But what we want to really look at today is what got passed by the Senate and signed by the President. So that's where we're going to really just drill down. Yeah, and, and there was definitely a sausage-making component of this yesterday as Diana was reading 70 million versions of the bill, and we're grateful to her and some other of our folks on our team for getting that out quickly. Another little note here, too, is that you know we are social distancing, and the sound quality might not be as good as it normally is. And I think we're all in a place where we're going to um, have some grace and some forgiveness on all of that but yeah so um do you want uh, want me to launch into the the family leave part or yeah i mean i think just as a quick overview you know going through these bills when i read them i'm reading them through the lens of how is it going to affect employers employers plan sponsors uh for my money that is basically we have an emergency family and medical leave act emergency femla expansion Mm -hmm. a provision for emergency paid sick leave we have payroll tax credits that employers who are subject to those new two new emergency provisions can take on their quarterly payroll taxes. And then the number four for me, and again, this is for employers and employer plan sponsors, is coverage of testing um, and visits connected with testing, testing. for COVID-19. So those are the pieces. And I think, Chris, you want to yeah. tackle FEMLA? Yeah. yeah, I do. And, and and notably, there are some other pieces that will indirectly impact employers that we're not covering here. We are aware that they are there. It's the unemployment provision. Um, and that's important to take a look at and to engage with your state employment departments. Um, so, so essentially, the first provision Diana noted is emergency paid family medical leave for employers with fewer than 500 employees. A good level set here is this amends the FMLA. So we are going to incorporate those rules uh, that haven't specifically been changed here. So we're going to level set with 12 weeks of leave permitted under the statute. The 50 employer threshold goes away and we're looking at all employers with fewer than 500 employees. 
Now, there's some really important distinctions here on eligible employees. So again, those of you used to FMLA, it's 12 plus, you know, 1250 hours. We're looking at any employee who's been employed for at least 30 calendar days. What I'm seeing the most questions on since we released this yesterday is the idea of who is a covered employer, okay? And how do we figure that out? Especially if you're a single employer with one work, you know, one, one structure, that's easy. If you're stratified, if you have multiple, you know, um, controlled group members, that can be a little bit tricky. We will, again, we go back to using the integrated employer test that applies under standard FMLA rules, which generally largely will mirror your controlled group rules. And so um, another notion, too, is any public sector, any agency of any size, this would apply to. Am I missing anything at that point with covered employers? No, no, but I think we just want to make sure everybody knows that when we talk about these changes, these these just, mm-hmm. I mean, they're cataclysmic changes to FEMLA, it is only with respect to this brand new type of leave, this public health emergency leave, which Chris is going to hit on right now. Yeah, and so another really fine distinction is when we, when we define public health emergency, we're only talking about coronavirus, COVID-19. We're not, we're not going to shoehorn in varying, hopefully never happening in the future, other public emergencies. We are obviously in an unprecedented situation. This leave is discreet and refined for only this purpose. Oh, yeah, that, that raises a good point, Chris. Um, the, the Families First Coronavirus Response Act has some very interesting effective dates. It oh, yeah, becomes yeah, yeah. applicable um, 15 days from the date of enactment, which is April 2nd. Mm-hmm. And then everything we're going to talk about today, that stuff all sunsets on December 31st, 2020. Right. So yeah, it's a it's a big change. It's an interesting change. This is very dynamic, but we do want to remember it's, it is limited in duration mm-hmm. and we are limited in scope to this public health emergency leave. That's right. And it's finite. It's, it's finite in time. So um, there's some interesting things here, uh, waiting period and benefits payable, what are we talking about? And these kind of interlock with the paid sick leave provisions Diana's going to talk about in a couple minutes. But when you're looking at this, 10 days of, oh, wait, reason for leave, public health emergency, what, what did I not miss? Okay, if the employee is unable to work or telework due to a need to leave to care for the son or daughter under 18 years of age, or if the school is placed on lockdown, which most of our schools have been, and uh, the or the daycare provider is unavailable again, which is what what's happening mostly across the country. And due to this public emergency, you can take this leave. Um, the first ten days are unpaid. Notably, under this provision, Diana will talk a little bit more about paid sick leave. Um, and employees, and this is always sort of the rub with FMLA or other. Anytime you have a gap in pay, you can elect. The employees can elect to substitute PTO. I don't think there's a provision in there that requires that or that employers can require it. I don't, I think it's, oh yeah, it's right here. The, the act is silent as to whether you can require them to do that. Um, and then after these initial 10 days, you have to provide paid leave for each day taken related to this public emergency or to the COVID related leave. The amount payable cannot be less than two thirds of the regular rate of pay with a cap. And where's the, where are those caps? Um, not to exceed $200 per day and $10,000 in the aggregate. So those are, you know, the, that's the, those are the, the main points of the leave. There's some special provisions there um, for certain uh, smaller employers and healthcare providers. The way I read those provisions, and Diana, correct me if I'm wrong, are that healthcare providers have an option to not extend this leave to certain 
workers, but it's optional. Yeah, that, that's how I read that as well. Okay. Um, what did I miss on FEMLA? Uh, do we want to talk about, uh, you know, one thing I thought was interesting here, when we talk about this very confusing definition of covered employer, mm -hmm. which is basically from one employee up to 500, a lot of us are scratching our heads on that, but there was a provision of the law that gives the Secretary of Labor the authority to issue regulations. Um, to basically exempt small businesses with fewer than 50 employees, mm -hmm. but that's not done yet. So it's something we're just watching. Right. There will be regs on this. There's going to be even sub-regulatory guidance probably sooner maybe rather all, than yeah, later. Maybe only sub-regulatory guidance. And that's, and, and, and that's really, again, what we're seeing the most of is, is you know, how does this stuff apply? And, and we hate to say right now, some of these answers are just we don't know yet, and we'll be waiting for that regulatory or sub-regulatory guidance. If you guys remember the days of the ACA, there would be FAQs Part 1, 2, 27, and, and, and we may be looking at that. And at least with the FMLA piece, we have that integrated employer test where you have you know multiple entities and you're trying to figure out how that works. Um, okay. Can we move on to paid sick leave? Yeah, All I think right. that's actually a, a great and a terrible segue into emergency <laughs> paid sick leave. And I, I'll explain the, the great and the terrible there. But basically what this section of the act does is it creates emergency paid sick leave. And again, we're looking at an applicability date uh, starting April 2nd, sunsetting December 31, 2020. Um, it's basically any covered employer, so an entity with one employee, um, but fewer than 500 employees. And just to, to shout out that public agencies, it's gonna be one or more employee. Why I was kind of making that uh, great and terrible comment is when we look at this 500 employee threshold under the paid uh, emergency paid sick leave provision of the law, I, I think that that is tying into the FLSA. Mm -hmm. And the FLSA doesn't have a, a counting threshold like it doesn't automatically default to control group rules or an integrated employer standard. So I just have been scratching my head a little bit on how do we see who's in this right. and who's out. And I, I guarantee that's going to be one of the first things we get guidance on. Yeah, we've been talking about this a lot this morning, kind of trying to figure out. And I think the idea you know, for us is that FLSA essentially applies to you know um, employers with one or more employees. And we're generally not dealing with this idea of a cap, right? And so... The, so the law isn't written in a way right now, and again, this is just from our, our research this morning, where it accounts for how you manage a cap. And so that's what would be nice to have guidance on. Yeah, and, and again, the Secretary of Labor has the authority, but has not acted on it yet, to exclude small employers, uh, you know, basically our, our 50 and fewer employers. And do we want to talk about covered employees? It's you know, oh. immediate use. And, yeah, yeah, I mean, there, there's a lot more to talk about here. And I just want to hit what the basic entitlement is. So uh, the basic entitlement for a full-time employee is 80 hours of paid sick time. When we're looking at part-timers, we're looking at what they uh, would have worked on average over a two-week period. Um, so we're looking at that. And I don't think, um, I don't think we're guessing when we say that amount of paid sick leave could plug into the unpaid portion of the FEMLA piece that Chris talked about. Well, and I think that, I mean, the law says that specifically, yeah. Um, but so also when we look at this, um, we want to take a look at, um, oh, when you can use it. So it's basically an immediate entitlement to use this leave. So that's very, very important for employers. And one thing that I wanted to just really call out uh, before we go into reasons for leave is that there is a directive in here that the Secretary of Labor 
issue guidelines to assist employers in calculating paid sick leave within 15 days of enactment of this law. So we know we're going to get guidance there. We know it's going to hit other things as well. It's going to be trickling down. And we know with paid sick leave that the devil's always in the details there, right? Oh, for and sure. so, yeah, we'll be waiting for that. And so when we look at the reasons for leave, they've bulleted out, um, I think it's six reasons. So it's basically the, uh, the employee is subject to a governmental um, self-isolation or quarantine mandate. Uh, the employee is needing to comply with the directive of a healthcare provider to self-quarantine or isolate, and again, related to COVID-19. Um, and absence to obtain a diagnosis or care if you're experiencing COVID-19 symptoms. And then the next three are interesting because it's to care for a family member who's subject to a local quarantine, state or local or governmental quarantine order, or who's been advised to quarantine um, by a healthcare provider related to COVID-19. The next one is to care for a child. Again, if the school place of care uh, is closed or the childcare provider is unavailable, again, due to coronavirus. And the last one's a weird catch-all, and it's if the employee is experiencing any other substantially similar condition specified by HHS. So I, I thought that was an odd list, and the only reason I wanted to call it out, and I don't want to go into too much detail on sort of like amounts payable here, but basically for the, the first three leaves I covered, which are the leaves related to the employee. Employee is quarantined. Healthcare provider says employee should quarantine. Employee's got symptoms. You're gonna get 100% um, of wages. For those last three, so we've got family member, child, and then substantially similar, you're gonna get two thirds of wages. We also want to watch for a new notice from the Secretary of Labor. It's basically a posting requirement. They are mandated to put that out within seven days. So that is gonna come up fast. Yeah, no kidding. And, and just a note here too, we wanna make sure that we, um, we just do a little call out for union employees. There's flexibility there in complying with the law by way of a collectively bargained agreement under those terms. So if you have union employees, you'll want to talk to the unions about that. Take a look at those and, and see how those um, interlock together. Oh, and that's a great point because that's both the new emergency FEMLA and, this, and, and the paid emergency paid sick. Yeah, those two. There's a lot of parallel provisions in the law in that regard. Um, I think we want to talk real quickly about the payroll tax credit, which I think, for, to my mind, if I'm a business, um, and I'll, I'm not going to you know, bury the lead on it, it's really a credit, and it's not cash in hand, and I think people need to know that right off the top, yeah? Yeah, I mean, and they do have a provision. So, yeah, it's, you're taking a credit on your quarterly payroll taxes, so if you owe however much, you get to take this amount that you've paid for FEMLA, the emergency FEMLA or the emergency sick, off the top, and then anything else due to you gets refunded to you. But this, again, it's not, it's just not cash in hand. Right. And I, I mean, obviously, we all know that that's really what the problem is right now. But um, we just want, you know, folks out there to be clear about that. Um, let's see, what else? Oh, COVID testing. Let's talk a little bit about that. And um, there's a requirement that um, any costs related to the testing and diagnosis, um, the products related to that um, come at no cost to the participants, both under group health insurance and individual plans. 
Um, I think the fine distinction here, because there's been some IRS guidance as to HSA eligibility, eligibility and all that, the fine distinction here is that we're really only talking about testing. We're not talking about treatment. So the plant, from, from a cost perspective, and we talked to our folks, our actuarial folks here who are great, and confirmed with them that their thoughts are that the testing itself is not going to create a ton of new costs for plants, especially self-funded plans that are going to have to account for this and have already budgeted for the year. Um, but it will, um, but the treatment, of course, is a different issue. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and I think, too, that um, when we look at the cost for the testing and the, the visit in connection with that testing, the worst case scenario would be, you know, an ER visit cost. And that still, that is nothing compared to the scale of what the cost for treatment could be. Right. So a really important distinction. And it does say ER here, but I know that I, I think generally, um, you know, leadership, political leaders, what we're hearing is that don't go to the ER for this test. And so certainly we hope that um, that folks are honoring that. Um, th I think this covers us from families first, families first coronavirus act. But I did, now that we have this um, platform, I did kind of want to run through a couple of other things real quickly that we're seeing a lot of questions on. Um, because again, we're just trying to be nimble and react to sort of what you guys want to know about. The, another question I'm getting all the time is, what do we do with furloughed employees? And employees we need to reduce their hours or lay off, and can we keep them on the plan? Do we have to offer them COBRA? That's gonna come out in some written stuff for us tomorrow, but um, or whatever day this is, I think you're probably gonna get this on Friday. Um, but I did wanna hit it real quickly with Diana. Um, essentially, it's the same approach we take on any sort of unpaid, unprotected leave. So if, if, if somebody's hours drop and make them ineligible under the terms of your plan, then you're looking at, do I have any other policy in place that would keep them on, whether it's an employer policy? And we're not talking, I'm not talking about FEMLA here. I'm not talking about any protected leaves. I'm talking about, you don't, you know, operations are shutting down. And, and so a couple things to think about. Um, if you, what do your employer policies say? What do your eligibility plan provisions say? You have to go by those. Um, and then are you required to offer COBRA? Yeah, you are if, you're, if, if benefits are gonna terminate. Um, but remember your ACA, full-time status determinations, those hold for an entire year, even where somebody's hours drop. Um, there's issues with paying premiums. So let's say you allow them to stay on the plan and a lot of policy or, or employers do. Let's say you're gonna allow them to stay on for three months. How are you gonna pay premiums? These are all things you need to consider. Well, and my recommendation on the paying premiums is always ha just have employees pay post-tax by check. And then the other thing that came up with me on this was we, you know, I've had a couple groups that don't have any way to keep these groups on the plan. And I just told them, reach out to your carrier partners, reach out to stop loss if you're self-funded, ask if you can implement some sort of emergency eligibility extension, but um, holy smokes, do not do that without talking to those partners. That's absolutely right, and that's in our written guidance. That's, I mean, and that applies in any situation. You never wanna create a policy providing coverage without confirming, especially, and then especially right, right now. And so I, on the flip side of that, I've gotten some questions about, hey, we have employees in a waiting period, which is probably you know a fairly high class problem right now, but um, can we put them on the plan early? You know, there's always some risk when you administer your plan outside of your um, written plan provisions, but I would say if you get buy-in from your carrier and your stop-loss partners, then there's probably not a lot of risk there. Um, those are sort of the major, um, another question we get is, I'm, am I required to pay my employees if I put them on furlough and sick leave, or I'd rather not sick leave, unpaid, um, you know, I reduce their hours. 
And the answer is essentially no, unless you have another policy in place. You'll want to talk to your employment law counselors on that. But there's nothing right now other than what we're seeing. Um, and this is, you know, FEMLA and uh, paid sick leave. Other than this, there's really nothing that requires you to pay them. We are seeing some best practices with larger employers um, who are just paying their employees for a month or 45 days or 60 days. So um, it really depends on industry. It depends on your own particular set of circumstances. And um, that's what we know so far. So um, thank you for joining us. We'll continue to do these as they are helpful. And stay well, stay safe, and stay healthy. Thanks.